Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. The more you do healing around and understanding your trauma and you know when your triggers present and what they look like for you, then you can manage them without as much disruption. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. All right, today on The Less Stress Life, I have Lisa Kuzman, who is a clinical social worker turned leadership coach for women of influence, who's making trauma-sensitive education just as exciting as the six-figure launch because nothing sexier than safe. She's on a mission to make learning about this topic fun and inviting while still respecting the complexity and reverence it draws. She draws from her 15 years of mental health experience as a social worker and personal trauma survivorship to teach normalize ongoing supervision and offer continuing education for coaches. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. So people will often ask me, how do you find these people? And Lisa, I just ride chairlifts with sometimes and we ski together. And so that's the real quick backstory is that we were just talking about work on the chairlifts and we were talking about trauma. And I felt like this topic was presenting a lot. I love the bio because it's not a very cool topic. It's kind of like when I talk about stress, it's not a very cool topic. (laughs) And so, and we often don't think it's a problem. And so I want to just kind of call out all those things today and talk about it. But before we get into it, no one's story is at face value. And you did you mentioned this in the bio, right? That you have your social worker by training and here you are as a leadership coach. So this is like, there's a couple of questions here, but really how do you jump from one to the next? Like, how did you leave social work and land where you are now? What was that journey like? Yeah. So I specifically focused on geriatrics and end of life care as a social worker. So I worked in intense and stressful situations where there's high levels of burnout. It was really interesting because I always had my colleagues talk about the importance of self-care, but no one was really emulating it. Like everyone was working too much. People weren't actually walking 
the walk, right? Uh, That always bothered me. So as a social worker, I naturally struggled with the intensity of the work and the stuff that I did. However, the real story of how I jumped from social work to coaching has to do with the fact that when I was 30, I got divorced. So my first husband and I, we were college sweethearts and I was raised in a really conservative, truly occult. Religion isn't even really an appropriate way to say it. So my first husband and I got married at 23 and about 28, 29, all of a sudden I realized I took the wrong life path and I chose to leave that relationship. During that time, I went back to therapy because I've been a big user of therapy throughout my life. I went back to therapy and it didn't help. And I just was like, okay, I don't need to feel my feelings anymore. I'm absolutely devastated, but I need to figure out what the heck to do next in my life. Like, I don't know how to move from here as a 30-year-old with a career who's just gotten divorced and chose to shatter all the plans I'd made for my life, right? That's the thing that was really tripping me up. So I had been reading some books by a woman, her name's Martha Beck, and she was a life coach. And I started reading those books in grad school because I thought they were so cool. And as I read them, my first semester in grad school, I was like, I should be a life coach and not a social worker, but I just like signed up to get my master's degree. I was all the way in on the loans and everything. So I went ahead and got that degree. But when I was going through my divorce, I realized that therapy wasn't helping me and I didn't know why it wasn't helping me. And I had remembered I'd read these books. I picked up another book by Martha Beck. And as I read it, I realized that it was really helping me. So I actually signed up to become a coach because I didn't know in 2013 that you could hire one. I lived in Iowa at the time. A lot of things have shifted over the course of time around people's awareness and the way in which they feel like coaching is something that is a viable thing to use to support yourself. 2013, at least in Iowa, it was definitely one of those things that people thought was really ridiculous, right? So I took the coach training program because I thought it might help me (laughs) and I needed some help because therapy wasn't working. And as I went through the training program, I realized that it was so fun. And I love being a social worker, but I didn't have fun at work, not very often. And I I had no idea that I could have fun in my job. Definitely never planned to become an entrepreneur. And then shortly after I was going through training, I met my current husband and I had a boss that was harassing me at the time. And it made it really easy for me to decide, okay, I'm going to step away from my career. I'm going to follow this guy to Salt Lake City. I'm going to see where this relationship goes. I still was able to stay within the VA system. But the more and more I went down the coaching path, I realized how much the structure of the black and white government aspect of things, oh boy, I felt like being my own boss could be great if I could figure out how to do it. So Mm -hmm. that's how I ended up here. So you briefly alluded you were working for Veterans Affairs or in government and decided to leave that because the, I don't know, what do we call it? I worked in the VA as well. And like I worked in Mm. government for a long time before being a largely contractor after I moved to the middle of nowhere. So I know what that it feels like. I understood what you were trying to say, but I just wanted to pull it out with it. Like you can feel like you're kind of in a box. And I think a lot of people, I mean, there's a Gallup survey from years and years ago that say that 70% of people are unhappy in their careers, which Mm. is kind of a lot, right? Like it's rather significant. So whenever people are complaining about, their career in my field, I think, well, that's not unique, right? It's every field. So anyways, you're having fun in your life coach training, but that's different than now you say, I'm a leadership coach. So 
what was the next step and how did it land you at this point? Yeah. So being a social worker, a lot of the work that I did was pretty general practice. So even though I had a concentration on geriatrics and end-of-life care, and I was really interested in resilience and caregiving and all of those things, social workers can do about anything. You can drop a social worker in about any spot in the world and we can help. (laughs) So it made it really interesting when I started my coaching practice because I was literally like, okay, I can help whoever needs some support, right? I can do it through this lens now of coaching. And that doesn't actually sell. That doesn't help people understand who you really are, how you can really serve them. Some of the marketing things that help people actually know that investing and working with you is going to be worth their time and money so that they quote unquote convert into clients. And so I went down this path where I was like, okay, well, I'm going to work with men exclusively because I just come out of the VA system. Mm. Then I'm like, nope, actually I'm going to work with baby boomers because they're transitioning out of their work world into the rest of their life. That's a big transformational period of time. I always knew that when people were needing to transition from one thing to the next thing, that's always a tricky spot because I'd been through so many transitions myself. I thought that'd be really great place to work with people. From there, I realized that actually millennials were super fun and I wanted to empower young women to know themselves the best. And then from there, I realized that what I was really always talking about and trying to help people with was self-care. And then from there, I realized that the reason why self-care was so important and the reason why that's actually something that people need to sort out for themselves on their personal development journey is because oftentimes we're dealing with trauma stuff that's happened in the past. And if we're not actually taking care of ourselves day to day, any of the personal development stuff we can do isn't going to land. It's not going to work long-term if we don't have this foundational basis of like, some healing and being more whole and grounded in our day-to-day life. I love it. So you said something in the beginning that I love to take notes. I'm just like, kinesthetic hands. I'll never do anything with these notes. I just like to take them (laughs) as you're talking. We might use them to write show notes, but other than that, they're just for Krista to remember and stay on track. So I wrote with exclamation points, you were gravitating toward familiarity. And you said something I realized, but you said it. It's so funny how people are so similar, but different, right? Because when I was leaving, I worked in several contract positions when I was in the Mm -hmm. middle of nowhere. But when I was first leaving dialysis for entrepreneurs, to help people in functional and integrative medicine, which was really way more fun and interesting. And I wouldn't say like, I don't want to give people the wrong idea of scope of practice, but really being able to live for what you were meant to live for instead of like generic crap, right? Mm-hmm. because you know what that's like. So it's very similar. I, in fact, I shared a office with a social worker for eight years. So we spent a lot of time together. We had the best jobs at the facility, but you were gravitating toward familiarity. When you came from the VA system, like, mm, I'm going to work with men. Oh, I'm going to work with baby boomer. Like it was like, it took a lot of steps to move from comfort to slight discomfort to mm-hmm. like, you just had to keep kind of working through what makes the most sense, especially if you didn't know. Right. And I just can think of, I had the same experience in a different way, right? Like mm-hmm. I didn't know because I hadn't been working or living in it for a while. And how long had you been in typical social work setting before you started making this transition? Would you say? It was 10 years. Yeah. Before I transitioned. Yeah. Well, that's not a short amount of time where you like no. create that. So anyway, I just had to call attention to that. So 
you started becoming very aware of trauma stuff. You realize you have your own trauma history because you were talking about going to therapy. It didn't work. Then you go to life coach. So you didn't have all this put together yet, obviously, mm-hmm. right? So really you talk about trauma and certainly you saw that in the VA and maybe we actually called it. Maybe there we were actually able to call it out quite a bit better, but you realize you're quite good at trauma because you've lived it. You've actually experienced, like you've been training for it for 10 years before you even got into quote unquote life coaching, which later became leadership because you said there was, if you're not taking care of yourself from day to day, none of the personal development will land and you can't be a good leader or you can't make the impact in the world that you need to make. Right. Mm, Exactly. So let's talk about how trauma started presenting and your clients and in your work, because I imagine that you were training for it forever, but it started to creep in and you realized that that was now the common denominator. Will you Mm -hmm. speak to that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting because in my work as a social worker, I was working with people who were grieving, dealing with major loss in the midst of a trauma response or in a crisis. And it was actually when I was at the VA, I worked on inpatient psych in one of the last roles that I had at the VA. And I started guys with an exacerbation of their PTSD to their service. And I started seeing some of the ways that their PTSD was impacting them. It was the very first time I was 32. I'm like, hmm. I think I have PTSD. Huh. That's really interesting. So, but I didn't take that any further, right? I just started realizing that some of the things that I was experiencing in my day-to-day life that I always thought was normal because of the fact that I have all this trauma stuff in my past, I didn't know it wasn't normal, right? Move forward, didn't think much of it. Oh, maybe I have PTSD. I end up an entrepreneur and there were certain things I would try to do to show up and be visible, to talk about my work, just to do like a Facebook live where I would completely shut down and literally not be able to move forward. And I could see that the people around me also running businesses, because naturally when you shift to the entrepreneurial world and you live in a really rural area, you need to start connecting with people online, right? Because you need some other person to look to and like, am I anywhere near doing this like you got to ask questions and you you need some input, right? So I had a bunch of people around me on in the internet space. And I realized I was like, huh, the way that I need to do things for me, things I struggle with in business, this does not seem to be what's going on for other people. I internalized it as I don't know how to run a business. I suck at making money. I'm going to fail as an entrepreneur. But what was really happening is, is that being an entrepreneur was literally causing trauma triggers in response. And it took me three years of being an entrepreneur, flailing wildly (laughs) to get to the point where I recognized it. When I finally realized I wasn't okay, there were other things going on, especially in the Me Too movement space, that I was having a lot of intrusive thoughts and flashbacks and things. So there's some intersections of things going on in my life. So I went to therapy, specifically EMDR for trauma-related stuff, that's when I realized I actually did have PTSD. They didn't give me a diagnosis because that clinic that I went to doesn't use diagnoses because they offer free services. That's in Sioux Falls for anyone listening. It's an amazing place called the Compass Center. But I went through two rounds of EMDR. And the second time I found myself in my therapist's office, sobbing uncontrollably over raising my rates as a coach. And that's when I realized that my business was actually somehow connected with the trauma responses that I was having. And then I got really curious about what the heck is going on here? Why is that even happening? And as soon as I started realizing these things that were true for me, I started seeing those same patterns with my clients. As soon as I was okay enough to start 
naming that and claiming it to be true for myself and asking my clients, it was literally like, you know how all of a sudden it's like one of those, like a Warshock test, you either see the thing or you don't. Mm. It's like, as soon as I saw it, I couldn't stop seeing it. It was like everywhere, these intersections. It took me a lot longer to make connections between leadership and trauma survivorship and how all of that connects within entrepreneurship. And I hope I answered that completely. But that was kind of a few of the steps to get to the point to actually recognize it. Then when I did, I started realizing that all of the things that my clients were struggling with who were entrepreneurs were connected to trauma and they all had a history of trauma if I asked. Mm. That's when I was like, ooh, we're onto something here. Well, let's dig into this and let's continue your, your story because it's easiest because like we already understand your story. Not really, but kind of, right? You mentioned that you've got some trauma history. You've never identified it, right? Like, So this is the challenging part, right? Because most people are not going to identify. We typically think of trauma as a car accident, as an abuse type thing. But maybe we want to say, I don't know if you want to use your own examples or if you want to list off common examples of trauma that would trigger. Because when you were talking, someone might counter and say, you were saying some things that sounded like, well, isn't that why you would go to therapy, right? Because it's like, there's things in your past that are making you act out in a way now. And I hear my other life coach friend talk about that all the time. It's like, hey, the way the things that you have in your history are making you respond to this current situation differently than this person next to you, right? Like, this is why you can't go on Facebook Live or you feel like a failure in a different way than the person next to you does, which I think a lot of people would go through those same. Anytime you're learning how to do something, you could also say, hey, everyone struggles with that to an extent, right? Because everyone feels like they suck at something at the beginning, but like nothing matters, right? It, it looks bad yeah. until you're good at it, right? right. And so how yeah. would you say like, this is different? And what were some of those trauma things from your younger life, childhood, maybe or first marriage that were kind of presenting in as you were trying to become an entrepreneur where you were having self-limiting beliefs? Can you like identify some of those so we can resonate with them a little bit? Mm-hmm. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm not going to answer it in the way that you just asked me. Sure. And hopefully we'll get there. Okay. We can come back. I really love the way that you're asking that question, but the way you've asked it isn't actually what makes sense in my mind about how I think about it all. Okay. Which right. is the reason why I'm going to go this other direction. Mm-hmm. So I like to break it down around fear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fear is really normal. Anxiety is really normal. When you're afraid because you're expanding, so Tara Moore wrote a book. She actually talks about two different types of fear, and it comes from the Jewish faith or the Jewish language. I'm not sure exactly. Anyway, there's basically two kinds of fear. One that's connected to what happens when you expand bigger than you are. You do something you've never done before, right? Naturally scary, not actually threatening. You're not in any way going to like not be okay, right? It's just very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other fear that's actually really true that there's this part inside part of this that's designed to protect us from, to actually keep us safe related to old programming and like what makes us human where the fight or flight kicks in. For people with the history of trauma, the threshold of when that fear kicks in is way, way higher, right? So the brain actually is constantly scanning, a trauma brain is scanning an environment to be like, should we be afraid? Should we be afraid? Do I need to protect you? But it attends to things that aren't actually going to have you be unsafe. So in the personal development journey, there are many, many things, especially as entrepreneurs, where 
it's a high risk threshold environment. We have to take risks. Being wildly uncomfortable 100% of the time is exactly what you get into as an entrepreneur. And a lot of people don't realize that. And so what gets really tricky is, is that how do you actually navigate the way in which you become afraid and how you feel that feeling where sometimes you know how to move through it and the other times when it's really not okay because it's literally poking at your past trauma stuff because so much of the way that happens is subconscious. We don't know that it's occurring, right? And I know you're probably going to ask, but like, okay, well, how can we know? So I wanted to set this up just to start with because for me, it took a very long time to even understand the difference in the way in which my discomfort worked and when I should be softer and more gentle with myself and when I needed to get over myself and set a deadline and then celebrate it and just be like, yay, I got it done, right? Mm-hmm. Or just practicing like Facebook Lives. I practiced Facebook Lives for 30 days one month because I was like, oh my God, I, if I'm going to run my business at some point, I need to figure out how to be visible in this way. When a person has a specific thing going on and they shut down, meaning their brain stops working, they get really confused, they feel extremely overwhelmed, and it doesn't go away quickly. So if it lasts for an hour, two hours, two days, two weeks, two months, that's when there's probably something else going on. So the severity of which it impacts a person being able to do the normal things related to whatever they're doing and they get stopped cold and they've worked on it, like they've looked at it like this and they've looked at it like that. And they've. it's not that there hasn't been an effort at trying to move through the way that that blocks them. They can't figure it out, especially in the entrepreneurship world. That's probably a pretty good indicator. There's something else going on Mm -hmm. connected to your past stuff that is holding you back that any amount of quote unquote mindset work is just not going to work. Okay. So I'm going to try to repeat this back to you just so it lands well. So there's two different types of roadblocks. There is fear. I mean, they both like are under the fear umbrella, right? Because the roadblock is going to be under the fear umbrella. And I always like say there are really two emotions, happiness and fear. There's just all types of breeds of those types of emotions Mm. and we could whatever. But so fear is this roadblock and there is the kind that's not actually threatening roadblock. Like, hey, it's uncomfortable. But if you look at it from every angle, there's a way around that roadblock loop. Mm. Okay. And then the other one, it also creates some similar type emotions, but it's got a different root cause or it's like deeper set inside. So it's got a deeper, deeper roots right? Like Mm -hmm. a tree with deeper, deeper roots. And so because that roadblock has deeper, deeper roots and it really grows out in all directions, it's affecting a lot of pieces of life because it's growing out in directions. And there doesn't seem to be a way around it because the roots go so deep, you can't go under it. It's growing up. So you can't go over it. You can't go around it. I just made that up. So I don't know if it's helpful, but, and is it getting to a close point of what this looks like? And is that how we know the difference? You said that earlier. You're like, I know you're going to ask me this. So is that how we know the difference? If I've tried to look for all the ways around it really, truly, really, truly, and I can't find a way around it. So it might be related to an earlier trauma. And maybe what are some examples that you've seen that are causing like a roadblock for something that seems unrelated? Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, totally. I really love the visual that you just painted for us and with the tree, because one of the things that I say for people is if you've got a tree blocking you, there's nothing wrong with you, right? For trauma survivors, that feels like there's something wrong with us. Mm. Well, the reality is, is that it's there. So we just have to figure out how to maneuver with the tree that's there, right? How do you honor the tree 
and still find a way to be able to shimmy around it, shimmy up it, get to the other side, right? Because that tree's not actually going to go away. Through some healing and therapy, that tree might shrink, right? But it's not. Very rarely for truly traumatic events in our lives, we don't get to completely eliminate the trees, which also people who've been through major traumas want to just like dig the freaking tree up and like chop it into a million pieces Mm -hmm. and get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. So my sweet spot is working with people who have a really significant history of trauma who know what it is. We're talking sexual abuse, sexual assault, domestic violence, major losses, unexpected death, car accidents, kidnappings, all sorts of different ways in which a person has been through the hardest, toughest stuff in life. Okay. But the reality is, is that 70% of people, if we look at statistics, have experienced some form of trauma. Every person experiences an event differently. So if let's say you and I were out skiing, we both fall off the lift. That may not be a traumatic experience for you. It may be for me. So that's the thing that I think is really interesting is a lot of people assign what's legitimately a trauma experience or not, right? We can have traumatic events that other people may not understand are traumatic, but end up being traumatic for us. Sometimes kids who are raised in homes with alcoholic parents or who have severe mental illness or even just moved around a lot. So one of the things that is an issue for me, I moved around a ton as a kid. I survived two house fires, one of which I had to jump out of the home and it burnt down. So for me specifically, I have some things that come up around what I need to feel secure with where I live and how often I move, which is interesting because I've fallen in love with this amazing man and we've had to move like four times for his career and every time, and we both love to travel, but then I get like panicky because I'm like, when can I get to that place that feels like home, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's my stuff. So I, I have other things, but the way in which whatever has happened to you in the past bubbles up to the surface, we cope in ways that we just, however we need to cope to get through things is how we manage. That ends up being thought patterns that we believe to be true, that may or may not serve us on ongoing. So for instance, I've been a pretty controlling person in my life, needing to control my environment. And it's always boiled down to, I have to be responsible to keep myself safe and to have my needs met. And then I go travel for three months in Southeast Asia with my lovely husband, who's planned the whole trip. (laughs) And I realized that like for a long time, I wouldn't allow someone else to do that kind of thing for me because I felt like I had to control it and he wouldn't be looking out for my needs. Well, that's not true. It was true for me as a kid. Now as an adult, it's not. But the way in which that thing happens in my head without me knowing it, and then how I correspond with behavior is really like, it gets sneaky in there. So this is why I think it's so important that anybody who's looking for working with a therapist or mental health professional coach, that you're looking for someone who's trauma sensitive or trauma informed, because without understanding kind of the way the subconscious stuff works, they might not realize you have a tree in your path and that it's a tree and that there's a a way to manage that tree. (laughs) Mm. And we're going to get to that because you just reminded me of our conversation on that chairlift over a month ago because it took us a while to get scheduled. So, but I want to go back to, you did allude to this briefly. I want to know what happens in our brain where we're kind of like paving those neural pathways for trauma. You said we kind of like 
write that experience down a little bit differently. And then it starts to serve us in maybe not positive way. So physiological, can you speak to what is happening in our brain that's different in a trauma situation versus like, again, let's use the, we both fall off the chairlift. It becomes a trauma event for you, but maybe not for me. And I also think to myself, if you had jumped out of a house fire, I could really like flare that situation, right? Like I have to jump to save myself in this situation or whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But like what happens in your brain that lays this down differently? Mm -hmm. The way I like to describe it, and I am not a neuroscientist or neuropsychologist, so I should, we should channel one in. I know I have one on. (laughs) No, just kidding. Oh yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. So the way I like to describe it is, is that we have different parts of our brain. So the base part of our brain is the fear center part of our brain. That is the part of the brain that when scary things happen, it immediately goes into the fight, flight, freeze. It's like a really ancient, older part of our brain that lives there, right? So there's that part of our brain. And then there is the emotional regulation center part of our brain, which is kind of in the top and the back. Mm -hmm. And then if you think of kind of like your forehead area, that's your thinking center. So when a traumatic event occurs, the fear part of your brain goes into overdrive Mm -hmm. because it's meant to keep us safe, kind of like at a, you know, animalistic level, right? It's not Lizard brain. Thank you. It's not the part that we're actively using or thinking from. Mm -hmm. It just is there to protect us. So what ends up happening is, is that the fear center becomes overreactive. The emotional regulation center and the thinking center become under responsive, right? So instead of everything functioning all the same, the thinking center and the emotional regulation center have less capacity because the fear center has taken over. Mm -hmm. And so for people who have a history of trauma, especially if they're big major ones, that part of the brain is going to be overreactive or higher functioning throughout the course of life or is going to take over faster and have a bigger impact in the event of uh, scary situations ongoing. Mm -hmm. And I really thought it was interesting. You made the point of like me jumping out of this house that was burning down when I was a kid and the chairlift. So for me, that situation might have more of a possibility for having it be a trauma response for me and not for you because of my history. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing that's interesting given the unique experiences we've had. And then as other things occur in our lives, it can push buttons on that old stuff that we don't even realize necessarily are potentially connected. Well, this is why it gets difficult to try to itemize a little bit because everyone's experiences are unique, but yet that's like helpful, but also not helpful when we're trying to (laughs) define it and try to help define it for people. Right. And I want to just mention, there was an interview where I interviewed Ariel Garden, who is one of the co-founders of Muse, which is a meditation device. And we talked a lot about brain pieces and we talked about lizard brain and like the child brain and the adult brain you were talking about in the forehead. I think this is the prefrontal cortex. It's like the parent Mm -hmm. who's kind of like regulating things. And this actually gets more worn down and not as good as we age. But for those that she quoted a study or two, and basically in people that meditated for at least five years, so basically long-term meditators, they kept a younger prefrontal cortex or brain, Mm -hmm. which is like, I need that kind of data to tell me I need to act. (laughs) That's pretty much all it is, right? Like I am motivated by understanding because we know things are good for us, but it's like, please tell me why so I can be more interested than Mm -hmm. I just need to, right? 
Okay. So I just kind of like outlined some of the things of the way the brain works. So for people who are like, oh, do I have trauma or not have trauma, right? In really stressful situations, if all of a sudden you're not managing it in the kind of way emotionally that you manage other things, or your brain is shutting down and you like literally can't make yourself move forward, you're probably experiencing a trauma trigger. And when a trauma trigger occurs, it takes over. And all of a sudden for normal functioning people who navigate their life in a way day to day. And then all of a sudden there's these like really bizarre moments where they're like, what is going on with me? Why can I not redirect myself? Why can I not process this? Like, am I crazy? That's probably a trauma trigger, an actual trigger, because you're going to respond entirely differently. The more you do healing around and understanding your trauma and you know when your triggers present and what they look like for you, then you can manage them without as much disruption. Okay. Because if you understand, like, I can't make myself process this emotionally any faster. I can't make myself think clearly in this moment. Then we can be more kind and gentle to ourselves. And we can give ourselves like a little bit of a free pass on not being at our normal level of functioning for a short period of time until we get to the other side. And then we can be like our normal selves again. And that's the part that's so crazy making. Cause I'm like, I'm a smart person. I'm a smart person. I've done a ton of like personal development, do all the things. What's going on with me? Well, when I finally realized it was a trauma trigger, I was like, oh, I can't hack that. That thing, that train, when it gets on its track, I just got to ride the baby out. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's additionally helpful. No, it is. You mentioned something earlier, I think is important because you said my sweet spot is helping people who like have awareness of their trauma. And I will often tell people like, I can only help you if you have some awareness. If you don't really think you have a problem, then there's nothing I can do to help you realize that you have a problem, even though I can clearly see it. So that is always step number one or challenge. I think this is where if we just step back, this is probably our frustration with other people in our lives and ourselves is like, we need to have more awareness around what causes us to act a certain way and what causes other people to act a certain way. And I'm really like, people know this now, but I'm really into the Enneagram. I have a big old Enneagram poster in the back because if I understand people like I'm not putting them in a box. They're already in a box. And this is how you understand the ways around it. If I understand that my client is a type six and needs a lot of validation, that helps me come to her with more compassion and care because I know what she needs to feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's similar, but different. Right. And it's just a tool I'm realizing could help me be a better person and a better provider. And it makes me, when I understood my husband's Enneagram, I was suddenly like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. But now I understand certain reasons and patterns of why he is the way he is. So are you able to give us a few red flags? And you've done this. So it might be partially reiteration. A few red flags of, hey, you might be dealing with trauma. It might be trauma if. It might be trauma if. Something like that. Yeah. It might be trauma if you respond in a really intense way that is atypical for you in any other situation. So I feel like that is the easiest red flag. If there are times where you respond in a way where you feel out of control, you don't know what's happening, you don't know why it happens, happens intermittently, be worth looking at patterns around when that occurs. Mm. And when I say patterns, I mean, literally like get a pen, write it out. This happened this day. I had this response, tracking it a little bit, because from there you can get a sense of, was it rooted to me? So one of the things that I get really reactive to is when people are dismissive of me. If I'm trying to communicate something that feels really important as an advocacy for myself, for the people that I love, 
and I am not listened to or I'm dismissed or I'm specifically told that what I think is feel happening isn't really happening, which is just straight up gaslighting, then I will have an, an extreme emotional response. Usually I become like ragey mad. I'm never ragey mad. I'm always like a cool, calm cucumber. Every once in a while, yep, I get a little intense. I might get a little frustrated, but I don't lose my shit ragey mad where I turn red and I can't even hardly like tell the person because I know I'm going to be horribly mean, right? That's Mm -hmm. not true for me. So it's like a good example. So like for me, I started tracking when that happened. What was going on? Why? Wasn't able to like figure out that it happens to be when I'm dismissed. Okay. And I had a pretty significant trauma thing as a kid where I was dismissed and I was trying to like ask for help and I wasn't being heard. Right. Mm -hmm. So my four-year-old brain somehow associated that. Right. So now as an adult, I have a trauma response when I'm trying to advocate for myself and people aren't listening. But I was able to make that connection because I started paying attention, right? And now I'm like, when that happens, it happened recently. I took my dog to get groomed and they trimmed the hair in her ears and she's super sensitive. And they had cut her ear at one point accidentally. And I was just trying to say like, these are my preferences. My dog is also my baby. We don't have kids. And the lady was super dismissive of me. And I came home three hours later, I was still crying and I had to stop. And I'm like, Lisa, what? this is ridiculous. Why are you still crying over an exchange at the groomers about your dogs, the way they trim your dog's ears, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of thing that I'm talking about where like, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I teach this stuff. And I was three hours later crying at my desk, trying to figure out what the hell went on. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, oh, but part of the reason why I didn't even realize it in the moment is that's also a part of a trauma response is that it's like getting caught in a tidal wave or like a train hits the tracks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It barrels through. You don't get to drive that boat, it you're stuck on it. Got to hang on until you get to the other side, and then you can. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's hard to see the label on the bottle when you're inside the bottle. And I think people we all suffer from this, and so until we have a moment to step back, which you literally said in different words, it was like three hours later. You're like, wait a second, this is a bit ridiculous. Why mm-hmm. am I doing this? It allowed you to have pause because you have enough awareness to say, wait a second this isn't normal. Maybe I should reassess the situation. And then you realize what happened for you specifically. Mm-hmm. By the way, probably don't want to open this can of worms, but wasn't 2020 the most interestingly trauma provoking year ever? Didn't we see everyone's trauma laid out online? I mean, like literally you could split. I mean, there was a lot of different arms people could have had, right? But people like were responding in ways that may have seemed irrational or atypical or whatever, right? There was a lot of like heavy emotion going on and it just keeps showing up in interviews. If I wasn't aware of it before, 2020 should have like slapped me upside the face on like, hey, look at all the trauma that's displaying all around you. Do you have any comments on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a part of why everyone's interested and in paying attention to the implications of trauma, right? Because 2020 was exactly that year where there's no way if you're paying attention, you could escape the fact that everybody is simultaneously like not okay, but in, in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the way we go about our normal day-to-day life, we do a lot of things to try to create an illusion of control. The way we do our routines, the way we interact with our people, the way we travel, 
All of it boils down to we're managing uncertainty. Okay. So we're like putting things in place so that we can manage our lives. Well, COVID comes, we all get on lockdown. There's legitimate fear for concern around the healthcare issue. There's many compounding things that went on last year and everything we had done up until then to create this illusion of control and to manage uncertainty, we literally got stripped away from us. And it happened in every single area of our life simultaneously. So it brought so many things to the surface of, well, I do these things for a reason. We don't even always know the reason. And a lot of times those reasons are around safety, security, and stability. And then you strip it all away. Whew, yeah, lots of things coming to the surface all at one time. Yeah. That's all we need to say about that because that's like a whole <laughs> different unpacking of conversation. But sometimes when I just step back and like watch the world around me, I'm like, I feel like we're having a huge, like, cause people have this feeling or this feeling or this feeling, but it's the same stimulus. Right. And so it's gotta be your compilation of experiences and potentially traumas that create those responses. Right. Especially if you're very vocal sometimes mm-hmm. about them. Right. And it was in 2020, actually, that I realized that people did want to talk about trauma openly Mm. and that just kind of like with the Me Too movement, it has become something that where people's awareness of their old stuff and the way it's showing up for them now shifted and that maybe before we didn't want to own it or talk about it openly because it didn't feel relevant or we didn't want to go there from a vulnerability standpoint. And that's not true. So I started talking about things really specifically, really openly, really directly. I've been doing the work in my career, like in my coaching work before then, but I wasn't naming it and claiming it like in marketing and stuff as I talked about things. Now I do. And it's made the difference is, is that that's actually something that people want to have spoken to now, whereas in the past, maybe it wasn't. So I think that that's a really cool thing around awareness and why awareness is shifting, which is amazing. Cool. And the conversation on the chairlift a month ago was that you realized that people were accidentally or something came to your attention where you realized that different types of therapists or workers or whatever kind of practitioner were accidentally triggering trauma in practice, but weren't equipped to handle it because then you developed a thing for that. So just tell me about like what that experience was where you realized that this was happening. If you can give a tangible example bonus where people are accidentally triggering trauma and not equipped to handle it. What did that look like? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that people can accidentally trigger trauma and not be equipped to handle it simply though. There's a couple of reasons for it, but I think that the number one thing is not understanding the way that fear works and how one kind of fear is safe to push a person through and should be as a part of a personal Mm. development journey. And the other kind is actually going to be re-traumatizing because it's anchored and rooted in an actual trauma response based on a person's past experience. We also, as a collective, just don't talk about the way in which really intense, hard life experiences impact us and have residual effects throughout our life right? We don't often talk openly about that or even be vulnerable. And then like specifically in the coaching profession, there's a lot of things that aren't required or systematized as far as the education component goes, because it's a new industry. So there's a lot of variability in what people get exposed to from um, how they get their training to become a coach Mm -hmm. for therapists. So I got my master's degree in geriatrics and end of life care and got certified at the advanced practice level as a social worker, I still had to go and get 
specific CEUs for ongoing continuing education around trauma education to become trauma sensitive. So I think that there's also a misconception that all mental health professionals or coaches have specific education around this because that's not true. You have to go above and beyond to get it. So because people just aren't familiar, they can accidentally be pushing through things or ignoring things or dismissing stuff that is important without knowing it accidentally. It's not on purpose. So yeah. That was really helpful. And there was a couple things you said there. One, who knew that trauma, that there was actually a training option for you. You made a good point, right? We come from regulated professions, right? Myself Mm -hmm. as an RD and you as a social worker, but our education starts at the end of our degrees. You know, it really does because it's like, here's the foundation that now you understand like generally all the things, but to be good at something, like you better go (laughs) and continue to like, if this was the end of your education, then you should not expect like massive success. I mean, maybe that's the wrong way to say it. That's probably the wrong way to say it, but it should be the beginning of your education, right? Right. Um, Because if you're just going to rely on that, it's like, unfortunately, I don't think it's enough. Mm -hmm. And this is where life experience tends to like accumulate. And so the other thing you said that was really important was that there's a lot of variability in a lot of different methods of how people are learning and being educated. And that is fine, but we don't understand that not everyone is equipped to handle things. So mm-hmm. anyway, the way you shared that was really useful. And you also reiterated that it might be okay to push people through their fear or otherwise it's like not good. <laughs> and that might be where you're getting stuck in mm-hmm. practice as well, or like getting stuck with a person. What's your advice to, you know, there's a lot of professionals listening or a lot of people working in the health industry overall. So what's your advice to that person if they realize like, oh shoot, I might be accidentally having that effect on someone or have had it in the past. What is your advice to that person, the practitioner, and then also your advice to the person experiencing this mm-hmm. so they can advocate for themselves? Yeah. That was a hard question. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm like chunking it in my brain to try to figure out how to answer that. So I'll answer the first one. If you think that it's happening to you. So if you start noticing there are incidences when you have these extreme responses and you don't really understand why, and you're 100% not able to function how you normally do to start noticing those patterns and, and see what's going on and what what, where that might be originating. Okay. Now, sometimes therapy is going to be helpful for that. There's so many healing modalities. Therapy isn't always the thing that's going to help people overcome and understand the trauma stuff, but it can really help you get a handle on that emotional regulation piece. So it's not so disruptive to your life. Right. Mm -hmm. So the more you know about that and the more you learn about yourself and you get curious and you be kind and gentle to yourself, instead of just feeling like, there's something wrong with you and you're broken because that's the default mode for the trauma brain. You can get to a place where you can navigate that with as least distress. On the end of the provider side or whoever might be the healthcare professional looking, if you're noticing that there are certain people that you work with and everything that you normally do isn't working for them, mm. all of your normal approaches, all your tools, all your techniques And it's been described to me as like you're throwing the whole toolbox at a person and it's nothing is working. They could have a history of trauma. If they're having an extreme response to anything that you're doing and it doesn't make sense, could very well be that somehow you're pushing their buttons. And I like to differentiate pushing buttons versus actually having a trauma trigger response because they are different, right? A lot of people say, oh, I'm triggered. Well, that's not exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. And just simply like if you're in any 
profession related to healthcare and you're interacting with humans, it's worth getting some education around what it means to even be trauma sensitive and understanding just a little bit about the way that trauma presents for people as it connects even to the work that you're doing. Because most people are going to have a history of trauma. Most people are not going to realize that's what's occurring. And there's always going to be the potential if you're interacting with humans that you could accidentally be causing harm without intending to. So helpful. I'm going to repeat what you said in different words, you know, repetition to help land because I think it was so useful. If you are the client or the person at the receiving end, or you feel like your best defense is super awareness, right? And I love how you said it, like get curious, be kind and gentle to yourself and just say like, hmm, I think this is maybe out of line. And I think maybe I can find someone who can help me work through this or you can work through it. I mean, there's options, right? I want everyone to know there's always options. And then if you're the professional or the provider or something, right, you're helping someone through something, you're having interactions with people, even if you're a family member, maybe, well, I think like your context was as a professional made more sense. But if you're noticing that everything you're doing that usually works isn't working, there might be a trauma response. And that is actually really helpful for me because I've experienced that and practiced before where I'm like, "Hmm, there's something not quite sticking here and I couldn't put my finger on it. So I'll be probably sending this interview to couple people. <laughs> anyway, Lisa, I know you have an option for professionals that would like to become more trauma aware or sensitive. So where can people find you online and find that? Yeah. So my website, which is just Lisa Kuzman, L-I-S-A-K-U-Z-M-A-N.com is the best place to get a sense of my work and the different options of working with me. There's basically three ways to work with me. If you're a coach, you can go through my nine-month grief loss and trauma-sensitive coach certification program. It's advanced education for coaches who want to have this extra layer of trauma sensitivity and awareness. As a part of that nine-month program, the first eight weeks, anybody can take that part of the program. I call it trauma basics. So for anybody listening, you could always do that option, even if you're not a coach, because I built that first eight weeks of the program so that anybody could learn a little bit more about the basics of trauma sensitivity and apply it to whatever your discipline is. So that's one. The second thing is that I do uh, supervision and then VIP one-on-one work with women of influence or who are in leadership roles. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on today, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.